turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Mark 1, 1 through 13. Mark's book is likely where we get the modern term gospel. Curiously, we find the phrase, the beginning of the gospel, even applied to events associated with kings or emperors of the time in which Mark was written. Gospel, that term, was evidently applied to news of an event that should transform the life or the attitude of the people who hear it. As mundane, in some cases, as a ruler's birthday. Or as significant as a victory of the military. But here this is not Mark's gospel. But you might note, particularly if you have some translations that might say at the beginning of this book, the gospel according to Mark, because this is not Mark's gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here, as Mark describes, is its beginning. Follow along as I read. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he had come up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Thus begins the gospel according to Mark, often known as the prologue. Let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that these words, inspired by your Holy Spirit, written by the pen of your servant Mark, Lord, that you would let us hear them by ears that you have made, and Lord, that we would have hearts to understand. Father, apply them to us, that we might believe you, and we might be saved. We pray, Father, that all the things consistent with your word that are spoken or thought here might bring us great joy, but those things that are not would pass away and never be heard from again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps I could say a few days, and you could remember what those days mean. If you don't know a lot about history, maybe you don't know these days. First is Armistice Day. Armistice Day on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, we often pause in order to remember something that brought great news and good tidings to people all over Europe and then in the United States.
United States, World War I had ended. Perhaps you remember VE Day or VJ Day, both days to signify the end of the war, World War II, in one theater of the world, one in Europe, VE Day, and one in the Pacific, VJ Day. If you remember the pictures of those days, there were news that transformed the lives of people almost immediately. After all, you see the pictures of people crowding the streets in the places of victory, and the people who heard it celebrated. This was good news to them. But even with the crowds in the streets, then came the returning soldiers and a collective sigh of relief that the war was over. And yet still, in other places of the world, this news resulted in a somber, hushed pall for those who lived in countries that had been defeated. The gospel is good news. It is meant to be shared, and when understood, it is life-changing for those who receive it. And yet, it is sobering for those who reject it. At least it will be when Jesus comes back. But interestingly, this gospel, this good news, begins in the strangest place. In fact, most commentators will tell you one of the major themes of these first 13 verses, known as the prologue to the Gospel of Mark, is the wilderness. The wilderness of all places. It begins in the wilderness, and it does not begin even in the New Testament. It begins in the Old, in the wilderness. So here this morning we're going to look at the prophet in the wilderness baptism in the wilderness, and the Son, the Son of God, in the wilderness. First of all, the prophet. Notice how Mark begins. He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. In other words, he begins with the understanding that this beginning did not start when Jesus was born. It did not start when John began preaching in the desert. It actually started in the history of God's people in the Old Testament. In fact, if you know this passage, you perhaps know that there are references or a combination of passages, not just Isaiah, but actually three different places, from Exodus, from Malachi, and from Isaiah. This is kind of a combination quotation. And this is fulfilling scriptural prophecy. Now, of course, scriptural prophecy, as we understand the Old Testament, we often think of prophecy as being predictive. That is, predicting events to come. And part of this is predictive prophecy of the Old Testament that is fulfilled by Christ. But really, the main purpose of God's prophets was to call people to repentance and to call them to understand they were sinners needing to turn from their sin back to the God who had created them, in the case of Israel, back to the God who had called them to be his people. And so this fulfilling of prophecy is an understanding that it both fulfills the predictive sense of these prophets and it fulfills some of the meaning that these prophets gave in relation to the repentance necessary for salvation. Look with me at these three places just briefly. One of those is Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. 
Behold, I send my messenger before your face. You see, the words here were given to Moses and the people of God as the angel of God went before them to guard their way. In other words, this is a reminder that the very presence of God was coming. In Moses' day, in the form of the angel, in fact, he was described uh, secondly in that verse. You might have it on the, the opposite side of your outline. That verse is quoted there. You see that the Israelites were told to obey that angel. In fact, many of us tell, uh, think that that angel may very likely have been a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus himself. But this was a reminder that God, through this angel, would be present for the people of Israel would guard them and protect them, and they should listen then to what he had to say. And here Mark is saying that scripture passage meant for the Israelites all those years ago had a secondary fulfillment in this moment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly was the book of Malachi. This verse was read earlier this morning in our Old Testament reading. You'll notice there the words, Behold, I send my messenger. And this is in reference in particular to the messenger who will come. When we get to chapter 4 of Malachi, we understand this message is Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament. And Jesus himself will say later in the Gospels, he will say, if you can believe it, John the Baptist is Elijah. He was the Elijah who was to come. They were waiting, the people of God were waiting for God's messenger to announce salvation for his people. And here John the Baptist is. He is this messenger that, that is going to prepare the way. So the first, Exodus 20, God's messenger or angel to Israel. Secondly, in Malachi, the messenger of preparation to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. And then finally, of course, Isaiah. Mark references uh, the name Isaiah in this quotation because this particularly is chapter 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. But it's interesting. What is John the Baptist preparing as a fulfillment of that scripture? He is preparing the way. The way. The way of the Lord. Now, on one hand, we understand he's preparing for revealing to the world who the Christ is. But on the other hand, this is the way of the Lord. Did you know that this is one of the first terms used for the Christian church in all of history? In the book of Acts, it says they were known as the people of the way. Jesus himself says in the book of John, I am the way and the life. In other words, this is introducing the one way to come to God, the one way of salvation and no other. This gospel is the gospel news that now this scripture was fulfilled, that they were announcing through John the Baptist the way of salvation for God's people. And so how does John begin? Does he go and knock on Jesus' door and said, okay, now's the time to introduce you to the world. Let me get you out in front of a big crowd with a wonderful concert to prepare our hearts. And then also to understand that everyone will now be amazed at who you are. No. The 
says he came proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Now, this is a great way to get publicity, isn't it? To go and say, okay, everybody now, in order to prepare the way, I'm going to tell you, you are terribly sinful, you have no hope before a holy God, and you must turn from your sins. This is the proclamation of repentance. And we still say this today. Every single one of you in this room, I'm here to tell you today, you're a terrible sinner. Unless you turn from your sin and repent, you will go to everlasting punishment. I am calling you today, as John the Baptist has and the scriptures do, turn from your sins. That doesn't mean just tell God about them. That means stop doing them, ask for forgiveness, and start doing what he wants you to do in following Jesus. That's what repentance is. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance. In fact, you'll notice in the other Gospels, there is more information given. Mark just condenses a whole bunch of events into 13 short verses. And when we understand what John was doing, the people would come to him not only confessing their sins, as it says here in this passage, it says in verse 5, that all Judea and Jerusalem went to him, were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. That's only a part of it. They also came asking John, what is it that we should do in light of this? He told the soldiers, for instance, don't extort from others. He told the tax collectors, don't collect more than you're supposed to collect. In other words, repentance is stopping the sin, but also then replacing it by faith and the power of the Spirit with things that you are to do to please the Lord. So here it is, proclaiming this baptism of repentance. But of course, what a strange man. You see what he had in his wild appearance. He's presenting the life of a prophet. It says here he was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. They have all these decorations up here. It would have been quite an illustration for me to walk in with a camel's hair outfit, wouldn't it? You know, this is the idea. That he was a sight to behold. He was a, a page out of the Old Testament even for their day. This was an Old Testament prophet. This was the Old Testament framework of prophecy and it's intentional. In fact, if you know the commentators of this particular passage, you know the Old Testament and New Testament scholars. If they are Christians, they will say... John the Baptist is really the last Old Testament prophet. What is his main purpose? To call the people to repentance and to point them to the Christ who was to come. This is his job, the prophet in the wilderness. Think about this. All these people going out there to the wilderness from Jerusalem, Judea. Now, of course, when it says all the people, it probably doesn't mean every single last man, woman, and child. It just means there are a lot of people going out there from every walk of life. But I think of pictures of people who are in a wilderness state. Hopeless, oppressed. These peoples are on our mind. Well, there's children that have been sold into slavery. In fact, I've been told, not just because of the recent movie that has come out, but before then, I understand there are more slaves in the world today than there have ever been in its history, largely to sex trafficking. 
I think on the face of those workers who are trapped in hard labor and have or think they have no escape. I think of the people who live in lands who are so desperate for something new, they are willing to risk their lives, the lives of their families and others, to go and walk over land for miles and miles, even threatening to drown in a river to cross a border into a place that is known as someplace good. You know, Moses was the herald of the gospel to God's people who were in slavery. He was announcing salvation by God himself who would come on behalf of his people and rescue them. This is what John the Baptist is doing. He's calling to a people who are in the wilderness of sin, trapped and unable to escape. If you understand your perilous condition without Christ, you understand there is hopelessness, there is despair, there is no way it is impossible for you to please God unless God were to intervene in your life on your behalf. The hopeless and the helpless long for rescue from God himself. And here is where the baptism in the wilderness is so important. Here they went out into the wilderness. And what were they doing? They were being baptized for repentance. And here's what Jesus preached when they got out there. He preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. First of all, he's saying there is somebody besides me that's greater than me, greater than the Baptist. First of all, he's stronger. It's funny for John to say, here he is eating wild locusts and honey. He's an outdoorsman. He's living on these things, and evidently the people are coming to him. He is, uh, by, by some reason, by God's grace, has been given some kind of charisma for the people to come out to see this strange man. But he says, this one is stronger or mightier. Then he says this, the strap, of whose word, uh, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, we live in Myrtle Beach. A lot of people wear sandals, but not many of you tie the straps anymore. In those days, of course, they tied the straps, and it could be quite uh, a, 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 a thing to do because sandals were worn to keep the dust out off the, the feet and to protect them and the uneven ground and all those things. And it was considered dirty work. You know, you always hear about dirty feet. Well, that's when you have open shoes and you're walking in the dust and the dirt all the time. And so he says, I'm not even worthy to untie or strap his sandals. In other words, he is worthy. In other words, this one is stronger and he is worthy. I am weaker. John will eventually say, I must become less. He must become more. And he says, I'm not worthy to be before this person or even to untie his shoes. Because he will be a different kind of baptizer. I have baptized you with water, John says. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
John does this with water. This was particularly understanding the illustration of the washing with water that the Old Testament gives, the washing and the purification from sin. But we understand that this was not a permanent solution, but Jesus was baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can refine us, can change us, can get rid of all of the things that cause us problems and can cleanse us completely. And the Holy Spirit can empower us not only to be forgiven of the sins we have done, but to help us in our walk with him begin to stop doing those sins that we're tempted to do in the future. Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit. This was a new era in the history of the world. No longer was it just the sacrificial system or the purification rites that were necessary to be forgiven by sin through faith. Now it was a one-time thing through the, the Holy Spirit. When Jesus baptized somebody with the Holy Spirit, they were changed forever. And now every believer is given the Holy Spirit to live in them and to transform them. No wonder. There's also a different kind of recipient here at John's baptism. We had all those people coming out, the soldiers, the tax collectors, even the Pharisees came out. John the Baptist called them a brood of vipers of all things. And then there was another in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. First of all, this recipient was named Jesus. And of course, that name is intentional. It's the derivative of the Old Testament name Joshua. In fact, if you hear Hebrew renditions, they might call it Yeshua or Yeshua. This particular mean, name means Yahweh is my salvation, or is salvation. So this recipient is named here for the first time in history. Now the name of the Savior is given. John the Baptist preparing the way. He has the privilege of announcing who this person is. Mark says here, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, real person, real place, real historical figure, they know where he's from. They know his family. They know his background. He is the recipient, and notice what takes place. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. He is spirit anointed. This was different than all the other baptisms that John performed. This alone reminds us that God had a special interest of this particular individual. We know all the details to Jesus without sin. He did not need to come for a baptism of repentance. And yet he tells us in the other Gospels, this was to fulfill all righteousness. We'll look at that in a minute. But this baptism out in the wilderness was for the people to turn from their sins. And yet on this moment in this day, Jesus coming out was to show the difference in the world of the recipient who would now baptize with something new. Now, I have to say, I think we all love the mountaintop experiences. Now, we could joke and say, well, one of the mountaintop experiences might have been me coming into the worship, the sanctuary this morning and finding out that none of our decorations fell down. I don't know. But 
I think of the great mountaintop experiences, your wedding day, the birth of your children, your first grandchild, an accomplishment in the workplace, an honor that was given. Think of those mountaintop experiences. Did those mountaintop experiences change your life? Maybe. But I guarantee you those times in the wilderness changed your life. The times when we're humbled from the failure. The times when we're confronted with the harsh realities of our smallness in a big universe. Those times when we're helpless because of loss or illness. Those times in the wilderness reveal to us our helpless estate before God. It's no coincidence that the people went out to the wilderness to receive the baptism of repentance. It was, a, it was a confrontation with the fact that they were sinners unable to please a holy God. It's also no coincidence that it was in the wilderness that the identity of our Savior was revealed. At the lowest of the low, when we recognize our inability to save ourselves, when we recognize there is nothing we can do to please God, absolutely nothing by our own righteousness, when we come to that point in our lives, the wilderness of all wildernesses, it's there that our Savior may be revealed. And this is what has happened to the Son. Verse 11 says this, a voice came down from heaven, from the heavens, from the mighty throne room of God, opened up to such an extent that this dove came, comes down uh, in, in the spirit descending upon Jesus. And this voice comes with everybody being able to hear this voice saying, this is my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. He is the son of God, the unique son of God only Son of God in this extent. He is beloved. This is a reminder, is it not, of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham had one son of the promise. And of all things, God asked him to sacrifice that one son, and Abraham was willing to do so by faith, by faith that God would raise him from the dead. Here is God, his one beloved son. He's willing to give as a sacrifice for his people. But this son, sometimes we overlook this phrase, with you I am well pleased. Not only was the son of God beloved, he was pleasing. Jesus was asked in one of the other gospels by John the Baptist, he said, why do I need to baptize you? Remember, he says, I'm not worthy before you. He recognizes Jesus is sinless. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior. Why in the world, since he has a baptism of repentance, is he supposed to do this? And Jesus says, well, it's to fulfill all righteousness. And I have to say, that's kind of puzzling. What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? It means that it was to fulfill God's perfect plan so that he would be pleasing in God's sight. That's interesting. If you have a little book by J. Adams called The Meaning and Mode of Baptism, John J. Adams describes this perfect righteousness as really this baptism is actually the anointing and consecration of Jesus as our high priest. 
In fact, when Jesus goes through this, it's in fulfillment of the Old Testament law of purification rites where the priests would be washed before they would be put into office. Kind of an interesting take. But the idea of all this is this is God's perfect plan. All the details of the law are fulfilled in Christ. And he is able to please God. I remember, and it's been kind of a fond memory, our kids joke about it even to this day, Jennifer and I have fond memories of our children sitting in our laps and reading that Dr. Seuss book about the dog. And, and it starts out in one part, do you like my hat? And the other uh, character in the book says, no, I do not like your hat. And then they come back with a fancier hat, and they're trying to make it nice and fancy. He says, do you like my hat? And again, the character says, no, I do not like your hat. And it's kind of a joke through the book. You know, it's red car, blue car, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, but here it is, this thing about the hat. What, what is it that the other person wants? He wants to be accepted or to please the other person. He's doing everything he can to make that hat fabulous and beautiful. It gets to have fruit on it and other things and all that stuff. And he asks that question, do you like my hat? And we do that with God. We do everything we can to say, look at me. I'm putting on all the right clothes. I'm doing all the right actions. I have all the right qualifications. Look at all the things I can do to please you. God will say, you do not please me. Go away from me. Go in a place where you will gnash your teeth, and it will be terrible. Psychologists tell us that we all want to please our parents. I don't know. I don't know that all that is true all the time, but I think we all have this great desire to be accepted or to please one another, especially those that are close to us, like our parents. It can be deflating to come to the reality it's impossible to please somebody. I have to say, I know folks like that. It's impossible to please some people. We also know it's impossible to please everybody all the time. And that can be kind of deflating because especially if you're a people pleaser, you want to please everybody. But perhaps even the worst is the inability to please God. You cannot please God with your own righteousness. There is nothing you can do. There is no serious events in your life. You can't come to church enough. You can't read your Bible enough. You can't pray enough. You can't do all the works of mercy enough. You can't be the one who gives enough money to all the right causes. There is no way you can please God unless you come to the realization. It is impossible for me to please God unless we go through the one way that he has provided. That is through the one who did please him, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we trust on him, we admit our sin, our inability to please him, and we recognize by faith not only that we're forgiven, but we recognize that by faith Jesus is our righteousness. In other words, all the things that he did to please God, when he presented that hat, it was awfully sim simple. It was without all of the things that would draw attention to himself. It was the plain hat of obedience to the will of God. 
And because of that, he pleased his father so that God would say, with you, I am well pleased. And this anointed son, with that righteousness, when the spirit drove him out into the wilderness, it says the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. This anointed son had victory in the wilderness. Mark doesn't give us the details. Matthew and Luke do. The devil comes to him and tempts him in three different ways. And Jesus quotes scripture and each time he quashes the temptation. He's not giving in. And yet Mark reminds us that this was just the beginning of the temptation of Jesus. Through the rest of his ministry, he must have been tempted viciously to give up, even so much so that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was dropping blood, sweat, tears, saying, may this cup pass from me. And yet, by God's grace, this anointed son had victory in the wilderness to become also the suffering son. Suffering because of the temptation by Satan. And it did not stop in the desert, but it continued throughout his ministry. And then the weakness of man. You know that. You spend 40 days in the wilderness, you don't have anything to eat or drink or anything like that. It says he was ministered by angels. He recognized now that he really was the one who had taken on the fullness of humanity. So that he would suffer in the ways that we suffer. That he would be sympathetic to us in our suffering. When we suffer physical things, we understand Jesus suffered physically, even terribly, on our behalf. Why? Because he was the one who came to be the Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. I have to ask you. This is the question we're going to be asking all through the book of Mark. What is your response to the gospel, the good news? It's not that we, based on our own righteousness, can please the Father or come to him in our own strength. Mark lays this out. The beginning started in the wilderness. And the wilderness is symbolic of us coming to confront our sin in our inability to please God and enter the gates of heaven any other way. But the good news is, there is a conqueror, a God-pleaser, a true son who can change and transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit by whom he baptizes us from sinners with no hope into members of the family of God. Let me ask you this morning, even if you think that you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you trusting on your own faith? Are you trusting on your own righteousness? Are you trusting on your own works? Or are you trusting on the way that has been prepared? The way is Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his grace alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We just bandy about that term. And yet, Lord, to be confronted with our inability to save ourselves. To be confronted with the fact that we are not God-pleasers by nature unless you change us. We pray that you will convict us, transform us, and remind us that in Christ we are forgiven. 
in Christ, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit who can transform us, even sanctify us and begin that process in us that we will more and more die unto sin and live unto righteousness. We thank you for the way.